Hello there. I'm Patrick Stroth. Welcome to the M&A Masters, where I speak with the top experts in mergers and acquisitions. And we're all about one thing here, as a clean exit for owners and founders. This week, I'm joined by Arthur Sorelnik, partner at Venable LLP in San Francisco. Art is a member of the firm's business, corporate finance, and securities practices, and he has an emphasis in, you guessed it, mergers and acquisitions. Art, welcome to M&A Masters. Thanks for joining me today. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Patrick. So walk us through, how did you get started in with corporate law, and how did that end up leading you into becoming a specialist in mergers and acquisitions? Happenstance and happenstance. Uh, I was getting my... Uh, I was attending the master's in tax program at uh, NYU after I graduated at University of San Francisco Law School. Uh, my wife was living in D.C. I was living in New York. Uh, I was broke trying to support uh, two apartments, not enough money to uh, <laughs> pay for my second semester <laughs> of my LLM. I ended up getting a job offer at a boutique uh, business firm in uh, Washington, D.C., at that time known as Tucker Flyer, Sanger, Ryder, and Lewis. Uh, it was a spinoff of uh, Aaron Fox in 1975. Um, I became the 14th attorney there. Ultimately, the firm grew to about as large as 70, but we really were a business boutique throughout. I was hired to work for a guy named Jack Lewis at that time. I really worked pretty much only for him, contrary to you know our associates these days who work for five or ten different people. I worked for him, uh, and he was, uh, at the time that I joined, uh, he had, or actually, I should say at the time I was interviewed, he had the most senior uh, associate in the firm and was looking for a second to join that person in the middle of my interviewing process left to run his family business. So he was stuck mm -hmm. with me becoming his senior associate, even though I hadn't practiced law for a day. And um, uh, that led to be both being a corporate and an M&A lawyer at the same time. Jack's focus was really M&A. And I started on the road uh, doing deals as, as a first-year associate. I uh, actually sold Ticketmaster to the Pritzker family as a second-year associate uh, without basically partner supervision. It was just trial by fire and uh, led to a very interesting uh, early part of my career. So you've been in doing this for, gosh, if I have my math right, over 30 years. Yeah, 30 so we could definitely – we can, we can definitely consider you an expert in doing deals. Mm -hmm. um, this this is just off the cuff, but I mean, sometimes I would ask people that have been doing things for a long time. Do you have a ballpark? Do you know how many deals you've actually done? I've tried to guesstimate, but I'd say it's probably north of 500. Um, uh, okay. You know, uh, there are some periods where I was doing, you know, 10 at a time, others where I'm just doing kind of one followed by another, followed by another. But I'd say on average, probably, you know, 10 to 15 deals a year. So over 38 years, that probably takes me between like four and 600 deals, something along those okay. lines. Mm -hmm. so, so, so you're not a newbie at this. Why no. is it so important for, <laughs> yeah, why is it so important for, you know, business owners or, you know, larger companies that have corp development and so forth to, you know, think about using a specialist in mergers and acquisitions. Why can't they just use their corporate attorney or in-house counsel? Why is it so important to just have a specialist like you? Well, because the practice of law is really so specialized these days. You really need someone who's expert in every, every, every area that you're practicing in. 
Um, there's a, there's an art to doing a deal that's separate from just being a corporate lawyer, and it, 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 you learn it over a period of time. Um, if, if you know the book from Malcolm Gladwell, Outliers, there's this rule, 10,000-hour rule of, you know, before you're good at anything. And, you know, mm-hmm. what happens is, you know, you learn from deal to deal to deal, that, you know, ways to solve things. And at this point in my career, you know, I, pro- I think I've seen every issue imaginable. And when a new deal comes in, I can say, oh, yes, I recognize this part of it from a deal I did 10 years ago and another part of this. And you, you kind of acquire a toolbox over time, skills to solve these problems. And it's just the more you do them, the, the, the more experience you bring and, and kind of the easier it is. There's very few unique problems. You may be dealing with unique personalities. You may be dealing with a distressed situation. But it, it's, it's generally speaking, it's all economics and risk allocation uh, in M&A deals. And, uh, and you just, you, you know, you, you figured out ways to deal with it enough different ways that uh, it just kind of at some point becomes old hat. Yeah, I think I think the analogy would be the difference. If you go to a nice restaurant and you ask the uh, the the chef there, "Can I get that recipe for that entree? I really enjoyed that." <laughs> and in the old days, they would consider that their intellectual property. They wouldn't share it. Nowadays, a lot of gourmet restaurants and high end places they'll they'll give you their recipe because they know that even though you've got the ingredients and the measurements and, and the materials there is all outlined, and they may have step by step directions. You know, there's a there's a difference between somebody who's you know, made a dish a thousand times for parties of five people to 500 people. And then somebody's just making it for themselves for dinner. There's all these nuances that just, they aren't written in the instructions you have to look out for, you know, the, the temperature, the amount of time uh, that you give to have the oil, you know, saute in the pan before you add things. There's all those other things that bring in that are almost unspoken, but they become almost, I would say, intuitive. Yeah, well, Patrick, you know, to kind of analogize a little bit, so I uh, had the misfortune of having prostate cancer in my uh, late 40s, early 50s. Uh, I'm fine, so that that's the good part. Mm-hmm. But when it was coming to who I was going to do, you know, what procedure I was going to do and who was going to do it, I ended up going to the top person in the United States who, and my, you know, my wife, who was supervising uh, this, wanted to make sure that I went to the person who'd done 10,000 of these procedures already. Because, uh, you know, they've learned a lot along the way, you know, they, they, they and it, it's just as you choose a specialist for the most complicated surgery, when you've got bad cancer, you're looking for the top oncologist in the country. Okay, you don't, mm-hmm. you don't want a, a general practice attorney, uh, excuse me, doctor, you know, general medicine mm-hmm. doctor doing it. It's, it's no different. This is, I don't want to uh, uh, analogize this to, you know, cancer surgery. But the point is, it, it's a sophisticated thing. and You want somebody who's done a, done a lot of it. They, and so that's, uh, that's what I offer. Uh, understood. And I, I think of all the elements that go into bringing an M&A specialist into your deal, whether you're, we'll, we'll think about this from the, uh, uh, from the, from the buyer's perspective, and we can, you can also relate it with, the, with the seller's perspective, but there are a number of elements that come in that, that you have an opinion on. Uh, one of the ones that I, I found captivating in an earlier conversation we had was the importance of uh, the development on a deal that you and I worked on together uh, of a diligence memo. Mm-hmm. And uh, before I hadn't been as familiar with the diligence memo, why don't you walk us through what is it, what does it entail, and how does it impact an M&A deal? 
Well, generally speaking, you know, taking it back to its fundamental uh, starting point, a buyer knows very little about a seller. Okay? And, and a buyer, uh, you know, they, they may have seen some uh, summary financials. They may have done a letter of intent based on some summary financial information with either a specific price based on a set of assumptions or possibly a, a range of purchase price based on a set of assumptions. And in almost all instances, the assumptions assume that there's a clean company underneath it. Um, uh, it's very rare for a buyer to really know of seller's warts that early in the process. And so the buyer, when uh, going from a, a non-binding letter of intent that, that, that commits it in a non-binding fashion, I realize those terms may be at, uh, uh, you know, at odds with each other, but you know, there's at least a non-binding commitment to buy at a certain price. They need to then know the buyer that, in fact, they're getting a clean company underneath it, or if not, uh, what the problems are and what the uh, economic effect on the transaction is of those problems. So at the simplest level, let's assume that uh, they were not aware that there was a pending uh, environmental uh, claim against the company and that the cost of a cleanup could be a million dollars. That's important to know. And uh, it could affect the purchase price by a million dollars. It could affect the purchase price by a lot more, just depending on, you know, what all the other issues are that that tie to that liability. And so from a buyer's perspective, you want to go through pretty much everything. Uh, It's a full full exam of every aspect of the company to determine whether or not it's clean. So you're looking at tax issues. You're looking at litigation issues. You're looking at environmental issues. You're looking at intellectual property issues. Do they, does the company really own the intellectual property that you think that you're going to be buying by buying that company? And it goes through, you know, employment law issues and, uh, you know, it's pervasive. There'll be probably 20 to 25 pages, single space of representations and warranties being given by uh, the seller uh, that try to give the buyer those assurances that they are buying a clean company. But notwithstanding that, even if the, you're going to get those reps and warranties, the buyer wants to separately satisfy itself that it's being told the truth. Um, and so it goes through all of these records in all of these various uh, areas to try to confirm that, in fact, you know, all payroll taxes have been paid, for example, that there is no pending litigation, that the assets are free of liens, uh, that the people who've developed the company's intellectual property actually assign their rights in the intellectual property to the company. And uh, I can give, you know, another hundred examples of things that you're focusing on from the buyer's perspective. But the point of it all is to educate yourself and to more importantly, educate your client on what the risks are uh, that may be associated with buying this company. Uh, this then ter- normally turns itself into some form of a diligence memo. And a lot of these have a kind of a green, yellow, and red, just like a traffic light. Green being an area where you have nothing to worry about. Yellow being an area where, you know, there's an issue you should know of. It may not be something that's going to stop the deal from going on. It may just be saying to the client, just beware of this as you go forward, that this may be a potential problem. And then the red are things that are, are, are really serious issues that need to be dealt with in some way, uh, either by uh, getting a special indemnity for something, either by getting a purchase price adjustment, or possibly the client uh, determining that it doesn't want to go forward with the deal. Uh, 
For example, in one deal that I was involved in not that long ago, it ends up that we found out that a client that was doing in Mexico was probably engaging in price fixing in Mexico, and our client just couldn't overcome that issue. It was just too big a risk, and no matter what purchase price adjustment they got, they just determined it was a transaction that they couldn't go forward with, and that issue kind of killed the deal. And so, um, you know, that, that's what we go through this process for. It, does the process become a little bit of a, a going concern or a, a flexible where you may uh, identify some issues as reds or yellows, and then you consult with a client, and then the client says, well, that's really not material for us or for, for some other reason. Is, is there a process by which some of the reds and yellows become greens and greens and yellows, let's say, or uh, is it just you put the report together, get some consulting with the client and with the buyer, and then you, you present the report, and then the buyer takes it and, and, and moves forward? That's an excellent question. Normally, it's an iterative process. Um, yeah. it, it normally, You normally aren't waiting until the end before you deliver the report. The due diligence is going on on a, you know, on a daily basis. And the client doesn't want to wait weeks or a month or whatever it is to figure out where they are. So I would say, generally speaking, you know, there's some number of weeks where we're kind of left to do our own business, you know, to do our own review, at which point Mm -hmm. we'll render a preliminary report to the client. We'll then sit and have a call, probably, you know, uh, just depending, you know, it'll be three or four members possibly of the client's M&A team. And then the some person from probably each specialty area where we're reviewing things, or at least where we may have a more significant issue, and we discuss them, determine you know, and figure out whether they're really uh, issues that uh, need to be solved, or ones that the client says, "Fine, I'm aware of the risk," or where we may need to go back and ask for more information. And I would say we probably go through three or four, maybe interim versions of a due diligence okay. report before we finally render a, you know, a, a, a final one. And, and from there, I, I can tell you that, you know, in, in my expertise in ensuring mergers and acquisitions where we ensure those, those reps and warranties from the seller to the buyer, that uh, diligence memo, I can tell you, just serves underwriters to treat that as their roadmap. Uh, mm-hmm. Underwriters do not commence a whole separate round of due diligence in order to underwrite uh, an M&A transaction. They rely on the seller's diligence, or excuse me, the buyer's diligence. They rely on what the buyer did to vet the, the seller's reps and warranties and confirm they're there. The, the presence of a diligence memo, not only does it really accelerate the process because then underwriters can take a look at you know what's been done and they, they, they proofread everything, but it can, if, if you've got a good solid report there, it can have a financial impact on, on the rate that's being charged. It, it can have a material impact. So right. it, it's just something out there. Would you, is there like in, in some areas and, you know, it, it's just one of those unavoidable issues that, that comes up and that would be the cost of a report as opposed to just engaging an attorney to perform due diligence. Uh, the, a diligence report is an extra um, service that's provided. Is there a, a, a cost benefit that you could give us? Whereas for every dollar spent on a report, they call it, they receive this much more added value. Is there any kind of calculation like that? Well, it, it's a little hard to say. I don't know that I can translate it on a dollar for dollar, but there are certain clients that just won't move forward without that. Um, they okay. they're you know based on the the type of organization they are. 
they may want an absolute assurance uh, that outside counsel has looked at this, vetted it, uh, and not just be relying on their own internal team to be making these decisions. So in some independent, you know, so in a more conservative organization, it may be whether you can be doing these deals at all. Um, as you mentioned, you know, it, normally these will probably, you know, if you're going to get rep and warranty insurance, uh, as you've mentioned a few minutes ago, you know, this will probably result in, number one, an, an easier underwriting process and possibly also a savings on the premium. And that savings alone can more than get, you pay for the costs of, uh, of doing the due diligence report. Um, but the other thing is, too, the one that's a little harder to quantify is just how many problems did it really head off that you just wouldn't have known about otherwise, where either you've gotten a purchase price concession because of an issue that's identified there, where then it more than pays for itself. If somehow by spending fifty dollars or $100,000 to do this, you end up saving a million dollars in purchase price, uh, that's you know a 10 or 20-fold savings. Or just by, uh, you know, you're making sure that you've identified and hedged against a certain risk. Uh, it may be that you end up getting a special escrow that you otherwise would not have gotten, not the normal just general reps and warranties escrow, but one over and above that for a spe specific problem that's been identified. And therefore, you have another source of funds to go against if it becomes a problem. And so, uh, you know, it's... You know, as I mentioned earlier, what what we do is we, we as attorneys is we focus on basically two things: economics and risk allocation. And this is how we deal with the risk allocation uh, uh, is by going through this process. And uh, from I'm my perspective, to, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think also is try while you while you nothing's perfect, but you eliminate as many surprises as can be uh, preempted. And yeah. there may be some risks out there. And it, 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 the worst thing is for a buyer is they find out after the fact they had no idea. If they go into it knowing there's a risk here and how can we address it and can we transfer some of it, and maybe they can't, but at least knowing of it is a little bit easier than getting surprised. Nobody likes surprises. A absolutely. And the thing is, this is what we do for a living. And I mean, I, you know, I realize this sounds like a pitch for you know our, our services. But we're very expert at doing this. A lot of the times that the clients that are concerned about the extra however many dollars it may be, uh, they try to do a bunch of this internally. The people who are looking at it don't necessarily have the full understanding of all of the issues. And, uh, and so it doesn't quite get the right level of analysis. The other thing is, though, too, unless you've got a company that's large enough to have a whole devoted due diligence team, a lot of if you try to do it internally, people are trying to do their own job plus this uh, over and above it, and it gets to be a distraction from their normal job, and also you know is being squeezed in between other things rather than a central uh, uh, you know point of focus. Um, and so I, I think it, it, you know in my mind it, it, it it's money well spent. You know if you're going to go out that's and spend a key, that's a key million, thing. I once went to buy a house I, uh, many years ago that I couldn't afford, and I asked uh, how much the monthly fuel bill was. And they said, if you have to find, ask about the monthly fuel bill, you can't afford the house. And, yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> and that's kind of the same thing. You're going to buy, spend $100 million buying a company, and you're questioning the due diligence costs. You know, I, I don't know that it's something you should really be doing. Um, gotcha. it's, you know, you, 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 the last thing you want is a surprise. And um, yeah. yeah, I, I think the most... The thing that uh, I hadn't even considered is there there are so many companies out there that don't have full-on 
diligence departments or they don't have that that corp dev team out there they they have the specialists but you can't pull your cfo out extended you know for doing that deep dive that mm-hmm. they may or may not be able to do they have industry perspective and they have the industry expertise but they don't have the legal expertise on whether cert- certain issues can be you know is that a big problem or a small problem and uh those are the those are the things that are real key yeah i also think there's just another there's a generational shift going on not necessarily a shift but a perspective change now where i think that if an outside professional can be brought in it lowers the stress level the owners you know dealing particularly with the the executives at larger companies and owners and founders of companies selling their business uh there's nothing you can replace like time and and re- remove worry from them and they will pay not almost any price but that becomes a much bigger issue to them because they want quality of life they're mm-hmm. not good they they want a good return they want a maximum return they want to minimize expenses but all that is is going to be geared toward quality of life and and that that's a big change from the perspectives of you know uh a decade a decade 20 years ago um are mm-hmm. What would be your number one piece of advice for companies looking to make a deal? If you had just your, your as a seller or buyer, or which, which from from which from a take, seller side or a buyer take side? one from me. You do, you do deals. You do both sides. Why don't you give me one from each? Um, well, <laughs> in both instances, I would say know your counterparty. If if you're the seller, you know know who your buyer is. If the, you're the buyer, understand your seller. Uh, um, because even though, you know, in some instances, if you're a seller, um, you're not necessarily just selling and moving on. In many instances, there can be uh, uh, an earnout, There could be a continued employment relationship, things along those lines. And so you're not just, you know, getting your money and walking away from the table. And who your buyer is is very important. There are more and less honorable buyers. Uh, there are buyers that are, you know, going to try and retrade with you. Uh, uh, you know, uh, all, all along the way, uh, either by possibly trying to get some networking capital adjustments. I realize I'm going a little far afield here, but after closing yeah. or making claims against the uh, the uh, indemnification obligations uh, and things along those lines. Um, from the buyer, too, I mean, you know, from the same thing is, you know, you want to make sure that the seller has integrity, um, that you can rely on what they're saying or they're going to become a part of your management team. You want to make sure they're exactly the right people. Uh, I always encourage uh, sellers to do due diligence on their buyers, especially if you're going to be taking their equity. It's extremely important because their problems become your problems. But even if you're getting cash, uh, you know, I tell them to try and call other companies that have been acquired by that buyer and find out what their reputation is for fairness moving forward. There are going to be problems. You know, nothing goes exactly. Something's going to happen a month or two after closing. And, you know, you can either have a person on the other side who's being very difficult about resolving the issue or one that says, yeah, sure, I understand. Let's figure out a way to make this work. So I would say probably that's my single biggest thing is make sure that you have people uh, of integrity on the other side and people that you think will be there uh, if something happens post-closing and will act in a reasonable way to address whatever the issue is that's come up. Wow, well, you know, not not to beef my own uh, knowledge of literature, but Shakespeare said, "Brevity is the soul of wit." And Art, you just came up with your 
number one piece of advice, know your counterparty, <laughs> either side of the deal. I think that is fantastic. Very, very, very well said. Our, I'm sure they're, uh, the people that are listening here, if, with their own perspective on uh, specific deals or concerns or fears, is a wide variety of stuff. And I, I think that, you know, uh, I, we couldn't possibly cover here. How can uh, listeners here, if they've got questions, how can they find you? Where can they reach out to you and have a quick chat or touch base with you? Uh, well, I'm sitting here in San Francisco. I practiced in D.C. for about 33 years and moved out here to open our San Francisco office. Uh, my uh, it, my email address is aesirulnik, C-I-R-U-L-N-I-C-K, at venable.com, V-E-N-A-B-L-E.com. And my, my phone number is 415-653-3706. And I'm always happy to, you know, just field any questions and, and try to point people in the right direction. Uh, whether it leads to a relationship or not isn't the important thing. It's re- giving people good advice and uh, and pointing them in the right direction because uh, the decision to buy or sell a, a business is a very important one in people's lives. Well, and you can't, because these are life-changing decisions for a lot of folks. You know what? It makes sense if something's that big of a deal to maybe take about 10, 15 minutes and reach out to somebody who's done 500 to 600 plus of these deals I think I think you you give them a perspective that they otherwise wouldn't get. And that email address for you again, one more time, it is A E Sorelnik C I R U L N I C K at Venable V E N A B L E dot com. That's correct. And just Patrick, just one last thing is uh, you know, I, I know sure. a lot of times people try to do these things from at least get to a letter of intent, uh, without even using counsel, figuring we'll get to one then. Uh, I would recommend that if somebody who's going to do this start early in the process because lots of times, even though it's a non-binding letter of intent, you start locking into positions which you have trouble kind of getting away from later in the in, in the process where people said, but wait a minute, you agreed to this in the letter of intent. So even though non-binding, my, my suggestion is for people who are going down this road, it's just, just at least discuss some of these things with counsel sooner, sooner in the process rather than and, and folks, you've got a great one right here. Who's done? He's seen it all. I would, I would say it that way. Well, Art, thanks very much, and we'll talk to you again. My pleasure, Patrick. Thanks so much for involving.